0: So, verse 15 says that you should have a reason for the hope that is in you. Now, I honestly believe that the practice of Christian hope is something that a lot of us are missing in our lives. And we would be far more joyful, resilient, and effective Christians if we indulged in a bit more hope. So, we often use the word hope in a very uncertain sense. So, we wish for something that is unlikely to happen. But biblically, the word is used in a much more certain sense. Something hoped for is something that is guaranteed to come. It's coming in the future without a shadow of a doubt, but it just hasn't materialized yet. So the Oxford Dictionary defines hope like this. To hope for something is to look forward to it with desire and reasonable confidence. And this definition shows us two indispensable elements of hope, and they are desire and confidence. So, for hope to take effect, we need to be passionately longing for the object we are hoping for, and we also need to be unshakably confident that it's going to come to pass. So, as Christians, hope is indispensable to our lives here on Earth, but in addition to that, it is also the solid bedrock for evangelism. So, that might sound strange, but I wanna show you why. So, without a deep experiential knowledge of our hope, not only will we be given to despair in our everyday lives, but also our witness to unbelievers will be hollow, it's going to be fake, and it's going to be ineffective. But even more likely than this, there will probably be no witness to Christ in our lives at all. So a lot of us, we put off God's promises as something we'll get to much later in life when we're on our deathbeds. And we don't spend time meditating on the extravagance and the eternity that has been guaranteed to us. So I think that's maybe because some of us, we actually feel guilty when we look at scripture and we see what God, like the amazing, lavish life that God is promising us, and we, we kind of blush to look at it. But as we do that, we're really missing out on something so precious and something that's meant to fuel us. So we often, we're like, oh no, we're more pious than that. We've got so much work here to do in this fallen world that we ignore those things. But others of us, and sometimes I definitely fall into this category, we simply do not believe those promises fully. And I often found myself in a place where if you asked me if the promises of God were true, I would say yes and I would definitely mean it. But if you bore down deeper into the interior of my heart where those deep attitudes and patterns of my life are working out, you'll see that I'm not truly believing these promises I'm not acting on them I'm not setting my mind on them as if they were really rapidly approaching and I think the result is many Christians are living like people with really no hope Um, so I know during this year I've gone through some periods where not only have I not have I not shared my faith but honestly I didn't even give it a second thought Um, and it wasn't a conscious decision it was actually it's a symptom of a lack of hope in my own life and you know how it is. I found myself in a place where I was so bogged down with the worries of this world, the goals that this world tells you you need to be uh, like chasing after. And with that in mind, it didn't even register that I had an eternal hope. So needless to say, if we're gonna reach people with the gospel, this is something that has to change. So firstly, before we start, okay, we need to know what our hope actually is. We need to question, do we understand... What is the heart of our faith? And the scriptures call this hope gospel, which is an announcement of good news. So the story of humanity begins and it takes a turn when human beings are cut off and they are disconnected from God. And this is a God who encompasses beauty and love and perfection. But instead, us as humans, we choose our own paths and we reject our creator and ultimately we worship Ourselves and we hurt others through our pride and our selfishness. And these actions ultimately demand separation from God. And every one of us actually sits under this sentence. And if this sounds like an antiquated idea, I just invite you to search your own heart, as well as look around you in the world at the evil taking place everywhere. And we all have to admit when we do that, something is wrong, something is amiss. But this is where the good news comes in. So God was not content to destroy or separate himself from a rebellious humanity. And instead, he became one of us, and he entered our world, and he lived a life the way humanity was originally created to live. And he then died a sacrificial death in an exchange where the consequences and the punishment for our sin was taken on by Jesus. So he took our place in this divine courtroom, and he brought us forgiveness through his death. He then rose from the dead, and he brought new life and reconnection with God for those who are going to be united with him by faith. So the result of this is that we are now in union with him for all eternity, and nothing, absolutely nothing is able to take that away from you. And this is our hope. It's complete forgiveness and eternal connection and relationship with God. So we need to know, we need to know these things. We need to know what our hope entails before we can offer this to other people. However, knowing these things by themselves, knowing these things as facts, is not enough. They need to be experienced as reality, and they need to be enjoyed, and they need to be treasured as things that are infinitely valuable in our lives. So for this to take place, God has to move, and he has to supernaturally make these facts come alive to us. We have to experience and know the love and forgiveness and the beauty of Jesus, and we need to know where we are going as a result of these things. So if you read through the New Testament letters, you'll see that perhaps Paul's most go-to prayer for believers is something along, le- something along these lines. And there are they're they're different variations of this, but I just want to look at two that come up in the letter of Ephesians. So in Ephesians 3, this is what Paul prays for the church that he knows so well that he's been looking after and he knows these people and their struggles. He prays that they may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. And earlier in the letter he prays again, he prays that they would have the hours of your heart enlightened, that you may know the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And it's so interesting to note that this is Paul's number one priority for his people. This is above everything else of, any, of anything that he could pray for the people, for his churches, he prays that they may know their hope first and foremost. Because out of that, everything else is going to flow. So now, how does this affect the sharing of our faith? How does this affect evangelism? If our hope is not living, as Peter calls it, evangelism will be incredibly difficult. So it either won't happen, won't happen at all, or it will be very forced, it will be very hollow. And you'll end up being like a salesperson that is pushing a product that they ultimately really don't believe in, and people will be immediately able to peg that as fake. But on the other hand, if we do start experiencing the glories of our faith and our hope, it really is impossible that evangelism won't follow. And at the very least, even if evangelism is not following, you will have a desire for opportunities to share your hope with people who don't have it. And I just think the clearest sign of our lack of the deep experience of this hope, um, we see this in the content of our conversations. So if you think about it, when you experience a new series or a new movie or you try out a new sport or you have a baby, especially people who have babies, all you can talk about are these things. You, you bring it up in every conversation and you'll tell anyone who's willing to listen. And it really just bubbles up out of you because you're experiencing the joy and you're experiencing, you're experiencing the reality of this new thing. So I think it's when we don't want to talk about Jesus, it's often because we're not really experiencing him and we're not spending time with him. And this is just a natural result of that. So this means that the fundamental necessity for effectively witnessing to unbelievers, it's not a technique and it's not an argument, but it's rather falling deeper in love with the God who sacrificed everything for you. It's believing his promises of everlasting life and union with him. And when we do that, we'll naturally want people to know about it. I think the second thing we see about evangelism in this passage is that Peter assumes non-believers will ask you questions so verse 15 says be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you he assume he assumes people are going to ask you why you've got hope so when I was a young Christian at university I fell into a very legalistic type of faith And I was extremely selfish and I was joyless. And honestly, my life looked like exactly the same as everyone around me. And I think the only exception was that I was probably more depressed and I was probably less friendly than the non-Christians around me because I thought I had to prove myself to God and I was constantly feeling guilty and trying really hard. And it's just not a good combination. So in my mind, I thought, one of the biggest brownie point earners with God possible has to be evangelism. So I thought to myself, I'm going to evangelize. This is going to get me close to God, which it's not going to help with. But upon deciding this, I realized that many people in my res had been around me for some time, and they knew the life I lived, and honestly, they knew that I was really just a negative presence. So I then realized there's no way I can go to these people and tell them about this amazing life-transforming good news of the gospel like it just wouldn't gel uh there was no ways i could do it but in my youth uh, i decided um, not to be defeated so i went out and i bought a bunch of really cheap bibles and in the early hours of the morning uh, i went into the entrance hall when no one could see me and i put a little sign there that said please take one and then i disappeared and this is exactly not what peter's talking about (laughs) his strategy instead is for us to know our hope and to live it out after that we then we we wait and we watch and we look out for people who are curious and they're interested in it and they are seeking an answer for what they see so at first glance this can often sound just like be an absolutely incredible person strive really hard and then just hope that people come to God because you're such an amazing person and we all know that quote that says preach the gospel every day but only use words if necessary and that's not what Peter is saying here instead this is rather radically different behavior that evokes questions and enables you to share the message of the gospel and I think the freeing thing about this Is that we aren't required to corner a random stranger and then coax them into this gospel conversation but Peter's saying be on the lookout with the message of the gospel he's saying be looking be living and be expecting to explain your hope and then when the opportunity comes take it so that's great but the more difficult aspect of this idea is that your life should in fact evoke questions from unbelievers there has to be something about you that non-believers recognize as different. And this can make us think we need to strive more, um, and if we, if we aren't striving more and we aren't these incredible people, we need to give up on evangelism. Um, we must think it's just impossible, or we constantly beat ourselves up, uh, up about not doing it. But both of these are a mistake. And earlier in the letter, Peter tells us what we need to do in order to look different. And this is not drastic behavior modification Peter has already told us what we need to do he says what we need to do is bask in our hope he says we need to become saturated with it and he says we need to let it leak out into all the different areas of our life we've got to live as if these crazy promises of God and the events of Jesus's life are really cold hard fact and this does require work But it's not work where we think. It requires great faith and it requires great trust in the promises of God. So the work is not in great behavior change on our part, but the work is in great faith change. So when when we look at, if you look at 2 Corinthians, Paul is talking to another church and he says that the apostles and the church are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one a fragrance from death to death to the other a fragrance from life to life. and he's calling us to this he's saying we need to spread the aroma of Christ and this is sensory language it's talking about the sense of smell and it assumes that there will be something tangible about us that is going to point to Christ and yes this does involve good works But honestly, it's much more than that. So earlier in his letter, Peter addresses wives who have got unbelieving husbands. And he says to the wives in his church, he says, let your conduct be pure so that your husband may be one without a word. And in this context, the unbelieving husbands would be aware of the message their wives are following. And now they've got a shot to convert them through their conduct and their way of life. So this is much more than good works because unbelievers also do good works. We know that. There has to be something of the love and the hope that are from Christ in our good works. And this is what spreads his aroma. So we must be saturated in him and we must be saturated in his hope. And lastly, a lot of us disqualify ourselves from evangelism because we don't know all the answers. So most of us or Almost all of us aren't physicists, we're not philosophers, and we're not people who can argue deeply about the existence of God. Maybe some of us are and we need those people. And because we can't answer all the questions an atheist or an agnostic might pose to us in in a conversation, we don't want to engage in evangelism. But Peter doesn't ask any of us to be a qualified apologist. That's not what he's after. He just says, have a reason. So he doesn't tell you what reason to have he just says have a reason and i think that means you need to have something real something that's from your own experience that you can share that's really all he's asking you to have and i think any of us who have walked with god with christ we have that so it's no use going out and doing all the research although there is a place for that 100 percent and you may be required to do that but the first thing that you need to look at doing is how has god changed my life so it does happen, but it's really rare that people are won over in an argument or by facts being presented. But rather, a transformed life and a personal, your personal testimony of hope and of what Jesus has done in your life is what you need to be able to share with a skeptic. And that is often the most powerful apologetic. And ultimately, God is going to work with that. And I think that is just so encouraging. And the third thing that the the passage is showing us about evangelism is really how to engage, how to engage with people. So we began with knowing and experiencing our hope and then letting it transform our lives in a way that evokes questions from people. But once we've done that, how do we engage once we are actually sharing our faith? So Peter shows us first and foremost We should do it with gentleness and respect, as well as with confidence. So he says, make a defense, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And I think this is so important in the world we live in today. So people either won't step up out of fear of failure and rejection or else people argue with so much intensity and with the intention of destroying the other person's opinion, with trying to cancel the other person's opinion. And those are kind of the ends of the spectrum that people fall into. And Peter says no to both of the above. He says step up and make your defense, but do it with gentleness and respect. And I think this is it's really so important because the way we deliver something is really revealing so much more about what is going on inside of us rather than the content of what we're saying. It's interesting to also note that Peter says we should engage people with confidence. In verse 14 he says, "'Have no fear of them, nor be troubled.'" So although we answer people with respect and we do it gently, We are also asked to do it boldly. We are asked to do it confidently. And we are asked to do it without fear. And if you remember correctly, Peter denied Christ three times before his death. And he did this in order to save himself. So he's writing here and he really understands the fear that comes with owning Jesus. But after we see him tapping out in that situation... In the early chapter of Acts, we see a completely different Peter. He's now standing up in front of thousands of people. He's challenging the authorities all for the sake of Jesus. And something drastic has happened between these two events. And what has gone on between the death and the denial of Jesus on Peter's part is that he has experienced the loving forgiveness of Christ. He's seen the reality of of the resurrection and these things have made his hope and his confidence certain so peter is now speaking on the back of jesus the resurrected jesus spending 40 days with his disciples and they are now sure of him they're sure of his love they're sure of his identity and what those things mean for them and it's amazing that this is what is said about peter and john in acts 4 after they're engaging with the public and the authorities And it says this, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So from this, I think we could see that if you experience his forgiveness, if you experience his reality, the truth of his existence, and who he is for you, you will naturally, just as an overflow, become bold for him. It's so interesting to see that their boldness in this instance convinced people that they were disciples of Jesus. So boldness, as we know, can be misplaced, but the right kind of boldness can also testify to who God is, and it can demonstrate the credibility of our faith. I think another thing to note is that after this incident, the church gathered and prayed for boldness once again. So they knew that they would need God's help to continue in this manner, And they gather straight after Peter and John have returned and they pray again. And this is what they ask God for. They say, now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak the word with all boldness. They're requesting more of what they've just seen in Peter and John. And it's interesting to see that this is a priority for the early church. Experiencing huge difficulties, this is at the top of their prayer list. I think that's so amazing to look at and be like, as a church today do we ever ask for things like that they're so kind of out of left field but this is the priority of the early church boldness boldness testifying to the reality of their faith and I'd just like to share a personal side note on prayer and evangelism I've found God to be scarily faithful when I've asked for opportunities for evangelism and almost every time I've brought it up with him I've had an opportunity within a few days to share my faith and I think this is maybe why I don't don't pray this more often, because honestly, it can be quite disconcerting. I think one of the, the funniest of these incidents took place this year. So I prayed and I asked God to help me share the gospel at Glenwood High School, where I teach. And naturally, the next day, I completely forgotten about this prayer, as we do. And I just had my head down, and I was on a mission through the corridors, needing to get work done, just trying to get to the next place. And I think it was a break time, and there were just hundreds of teenage boys doing their thing, bustling around you, and I'm just trying to fight through this mob. And uh, When suddenly, two of them, they, just, they grabbed me, and they said, Sir, please can you answer this question for us about Christianity? And I'd never taught any of them. I'd never coached any of them. It was just a crazy thing. And after that, I was, I was able to stop. I stopped and... I had a conversation with these two guys about the gospel, but I just think the incredible thing about this is we, we feel this pressure, like how are we going to initiate this conversation? But it's incredible to see a prayer like that answered, where you don't have to do anything. If you ask God and you let him do the work, these things come and hit you in the face. I know how awkward it is to go up to someone and be like, "Hmm, so have you heard about this? But when you pray for these things and you see people suddenly ask you questions out of nowhere. It would be wrong for me not to answer them. And I just think that's such an incredible thing to maybe be a part of. And I just want to encourage you to maybe pray that prayer in this week and just see what God does because I think God really wants to answer some of these prayers. So, the book of 1 Peter as a whole is really showing us what it means to be a minority in a world that doesn't share our faith and it doesn't share our beliefs. And chapter 3 in particular is showing us that sharing our faith is a vital part of that lifestyle. So Peter has shown us that in order for witnessing, for evangelism to take place, we have to know and we have to be immersed in our hope. And evangelism stands or falls on this. Without it, we won't be able to evangelize. Secondly, we need to live in a way that non-Christians question us to find out why our lifestyle should be speaking of the gospel. And this flows from the first point. Unless our hope is influencing the way we live, even our good works are going to be hollow. People are going to see them for what they are. And thirdly, Peter shows us that once we are giving a reason for our hope and explaining our faith to people, we should do it with gentleness, with respect, as well as with confidence. And these things will reveal to people the love that is in us and they will also speak to the reality of what we believe. So I think it can be so encouraging to look at the stories of how people have come to Christ. And they always involve a willing or an unwilling participant who God uses to write this amazing story of redemption. And when we look at a story like Augustine's, and there are really throughout history, there are hundreds of thousands like his. We see evangelism doesn't have to be forced. It doesn't have to be awkward. And when we look at the scriptures, we see that the scriptures back this up as well. I think that's so comforting. So I would really like to leave us with this encouragement. And the encouragement is that evangelism doesn't hang on you as an individual. So God cares much more about saving people than you do. And really, he's going to do it with or without you. But I think it's such a privilege that he invites us into his work, and he asks us to join him in calling souls to himself for eternity. What a privilege. So in Acts 18, it's the early days of the church, and Paul is going from city to city, and he's spreading this gospel. And he's in the city of Corinth, and he's been facing huge opposition. No one is responding to his message And he's really worn down, and he's thinking about moving on to the next city. And God visits him in a vision and says to him, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in the city who are my people. And this is God's charge to Paul in Corinth. But it's also God's charge to us in Durban today he's charging us to go on speaking he's saying he will be with us and finally he's saying he has many people in Durban who are unsaved at the moment who he wants to save through our witness so that's what i want to leave you with it's an encouragement i want to leave you with i just want to show you that this is possible it's something we often sweep under the rug because it's difficult it's awkward but I think when we push through and we see there's so much beauty there's so much life in this and really being a part of these stories is one of the most amazing things you can give your life to you're going to be a part of God's kingdom advancing you're going to be part of people coming to know him you're going to be part of life breaking out in this world and it's so possible and what a privilege to be able to do it so that's what I would just like to leave you with thank you very much